Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Professor Tony Gill. Tony Gill is Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington, and here we speak about the political economy of gifting the act of giving gifts. Professor Gill is always very insightful and a lot of fun to talk to, so I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, Professor Tony Gill. Greetings. How are you doing? It's good to be on the the podcast here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm doing good. I hope you're doing well yourself. I am doing very well, and I am prepared to talk all about gifting today. In fact, I am so prepared for it. I've actually written a poem for you and all of our listeners. Would you like to hear it? Absolutely. Yeah, you told me about this. Please go ahead. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the land. Economists were worried about supply and demand. They worried about waste and transaction costs. All these presents we buy just produce dead weight loss. The logic is simple, Professor Waldfogel claims. Without information, there can be no trade gain. The recipient knows their own desire better but the giver gives him a hideous cat sweater. Our problem is clear. It's a preference mismatch. Life would be better if we just gave cold cash. It was then at that moment I cried out in despair. Oh, why do we give gifts? Oh, why do we care? I started to cry. Tears filled my Adam Smith mug, a gift that I was given. Economics, humbug. But then came a sudden noise from the attic. Two scholars yelled out, your model's too static. They further explained, give gifts. Yes, we must. It's about building networks and instilling trust. Think broadly, they claimed about maximization. You don't give gifts once. Rituals create iteration. And so we gather together to give and receive. And now from this poem, I take a reprieve to explain to you all our social science logic and to show that good culture is good economics. Wow. Well, I mean, that that's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. We could probably end the podcast here. <laughs> like that was, that was absolutely sensational. Well, the, the poem, I wrote the poem because it was a, an attempt at writing an abstract for the paper and it's all there. That's and what I was I, thinking, yeah. <laughs> And it would be nice if we could find a, a journal that would just publish the poem along with the article, which would be really nice. But we've given presentations on this across the country and realize start with it. And academics are quite amazed that somebody would start uh, their talk with poetry. I've, I've seen it one or two times before, but we are really uh, weaving it into what we're doing here with this project on gift giving, because it's not the typical topic that you know, you, a, a, a political economist would study. I mean, political economists study GDP and, you know, trade barriers and all that kind of stuff, right? And here we are, you know, doing this silly thing on Christmas gifts and Hanukkah gifts and Valentine's Day gifts and 
We even have uh, some stuff written up on Halloween too, which is uh, you know, coming up this time of year. So uh, it, it's kind of a fun way of doing it. And it's, it's a completely fun project to be doing with my uh, co-author, Michael Thomas, who is at Creighton University. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you had presented uh, this paper actually at the Political Economy Forum talk that we are now again organizing in person, um, fantastically. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't make it. So now we have the uh, great opportunity to create a podcast about this topic as well. Because I mean, as you're saying, this might seem a little bit out of the out of the box, but at the same time, I think, um, as you're saying, right, it, it raises a lot of um, important political economy questions. So maybe lay out the basic issue or a puzzle that you're responding to here in the paper. You're absolutely right when you say that it lays out some very important political economy concepts. Because even though it seems like a fr frivolous topic. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's really coming to understand what we consider to be a blind spot in economics and political economy, which is overlooking uh, civil society. Mm -hmm. So the basis of this project actually goes back almost 27, 28 years now when Professor Joel Waldfogel um, wrote an article uh, about the deadweight loss of Christmas. Mm -hmm. And this sets up the puzzle here. He said, Christmas is inefficient. Because you think about this, how many times do you get a gift that you really don't want? And so you get an ugly cat sweater and your aunt gives this to you and you, you smile politely and, and thank her for it. But then you put it in the back of your closet. It takes up a lot of space. You never wear it. And, you know, your aunt had purchased this for maybe 30, 40, $50. And so it's like burning money. And so Walt Fogel said, this is really, really inefficient for all, all this gift buying that we do. I know a lot of people say, oh, it's great because it supports retail sales. But you know, the bottom line is you're buying a lot of garbage that nobody wants. It's and wasteful he, too, yeah. Yeah. And, and he did a study on this with a number of his undergraduates and asked them, you know, what did you get for Christmas? And then how did you value it? You know, what price would you put on that? And what price does it sell for at the store? And he found out that there was between like a 15 and 22% deadweight loss. He mm -hmm. later repeated the experiment and found it was a little bit less, around 7%. But it, it was, you know, the, the big art, uh, argument here that he made was that it's inefficient for economies to engage in this gift giving thing. And he wrote a little article on it in Forbes. He published a little piece in the American Economic Review in 1993, thereabouts. And um, it was kind of neat. I used it in class as a fun way of just talking with students. But Michael Thomas and I got together and he said, well, we need, we need to write an article about this because we actually don't think it's a deadweight loss on society. Mm -hmm. Even though you get a sweater that you may never wear um, or a... Uh, a wedding gift. I have this wedding statue that one of my aunts gave me that is not really part of our uh, overall motif in our house. It's, you know, kind of ugly. Um, there's still very valuable benefits to this. And what we've been thinking about is the difference between static inefficiency and dynamic inefficiency. So, so let's just be very precise here for a second. Um, where exactly does the inefficiency arise according to Walt Vogel here and maybe maybe that's easily uh, or easiest to explain if you compare a gift like a sweater to 
me just giving someone the $15 in cash uh, that the sweater cost to, to me as the buyer. Exactly. This is what we call static inefficiency. So when you receive a gift of a sweater, uh, you might have paid 15, you said $15 for it. I don't mm -hmm. know where you get $15 sweaters, but <laughs> let's say you, you found uh, one for $15 um, and you give it to me and I say, oh, that's, that's great, but I never use it, right? It has mm -hmm. absolutely no use value to me. And I would have preferred that you gave me $15 in cash because right. then I would have went out and bought, you know, an album by Led Zeppelin or something like that, right? Something mm -hmm. that I really wanted. And what Walfold goal arg argues is that the efficiency comes in this preference mismatch, mm -hmm. that the buyer of the good doesn't really know what the preference profile or the things that the other person wants. And so they give them stuff that's not highly valued. And so while you take $15 of resources to buy the sweater, in, at the end of the day, there's no $15 of use that's you know gained from this. It, it just ends up in the back of your closet. And it might take up space or you might throw it away or something. Maybe, maybe get a little use for it. You polish your car with it or something. I don't know. Um, but that's this deadweight loss that uh, Joe Waldvogel is, is worried about. And that we consider to be static inefficiency. So it's you know, supply is not really meeting demand here. Um, because somebody would rather have the $15 cash than the sweater. You know, it's not worth $15, then it would be worth zero to them. So there's a $15 static loss in the economy. It's as if your aunt uh, or if you had just took three $5 bills and burned them. Let me just push back here um, because I'm curious to hear what your uh, thoughts are on this. I know you have your interpretation of what, what gifting is ultimately about. And maybe my question will foreshadow that slightly. But Waldvogel and, I mean, other people who have made similar arguments are assuming that gifting is about the gift, right? That, that it's really about the product that I'm receiving rather than the, the, the process of gifting. But another way to think about this would be to consider maybe what gifting is really about is to show the other person how close I can get to what their ideal gift is, maybe mm -hmm. to minimize uh, the deadweight loss, right? If, if I can show how well I know another person, right? By giving them something that is super close to what they would be buying with $15, with the equivalent of $15. Maybe that's what the exercise of gifting is, right? That's just me showing how well I know another person. Yes, and that is one of the things that often comes up. Nobody wants to give a gift that's unappreciated. Right. So you're going to have to do a little bit of thinking when you're shopping. What would this person, um, you know, like? What do they enjoy? And and people who are have lived together for a long time. My wife and I have been married for you know almost 30 years now, and we kind of know what each other wants, and we kind of have some ideas what some fun gifts would be, more useful gifts. Um, so that's not that big a deal. But once you start moving away from those intimate relationships, the the, the process of gift giving becomes a little more risky. Mm. And it, this is one of these problems is my aunt who I love dearly uh, attended our wedding and, and I thought she knew me pretty well. I you know, grew up with her and went to her ranch and stuff like this. And it was, you know, hung out with her all the time. And she gives us the statue. It's like, Aunt Kitty, you don't, you don't know me at all. Um, uh -huh. You know, and, and it, there's a there's a disutility there. So not only do I not like the statue, but I'm like, oh, our relationship is 
is now a little bit tarnished because I thought you knew me, you know, deeply and you give me this gift that maybe might be insulting. Um, so it's risky. And, and not surprisingly, and, and a number of follow-up studies have uh, shown this, is that typically people who are more distant from you will give you cash at various points in time. A, a classic of this is, you know, during graduation. Uh, you graduate mm -hmm. from high school or college or something, and you get all these, you know, second cousins that come over and say congratulations, and they give you a, a card, and it's, you know, $20 in cash to help you pay your, you know, expenses in college or something like that. So that, um, you know, you people who don't know you very well mm -hmm. then do resort to cash. But it's that kind of fuzzy zone there of people who, you think know you pretty well, but they're still going out on a limb and giving you this thing. It might actually cause a, a bit of a strain on the relationship. I mean, imagine if I gave my wife a vacuum cleaner um, after dating for a year. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, that would that would not be good. I probably wouldn't be have, have been married for 30 years or something. So, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Right. So maybe it's not about the product itself, but um it's about you proving how how well you know another person, and and yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about your aunt Kitty, but um, you know, maybe that whole story really did reveal a lot about how well she actually knows you, or how well she's willing to to engage with your interests, or something like that. But yeah, moving on. So, what's the what's the rub here in your paper? What uh, what argument are you making here? You mentioned dynamic efficiency. Maybe um, for our listeners, could you maybe explain what the difference is between static and dynamic efficiency? So static efficiency is what we're measuring right in the here and now, in the short term, is that mm -hmm. preferences are not being met. There's a you know, uh, disjuncture between supply and demand, and we can kind of graph that out on the supply and demand curve. Um, dynamic efficiency, though, is efficiency that comes in over time, right? That economies not only require that we, you know, match supply and demand, but that they move smoothly and that individuals will uh, trade with one another. And this is what we consider to be very important. And if, if I could back up just a moment, this Please, yeah. puzzle that Waldvogel put before us, you know, gifting is very inefficient. Um, raises another puzzle. If it's so inefficient in society, why has it lasted so long? And why is it so ubiquitous across different cultures and throughout history? I mean, it, it, we um, picked up a book uh, by anthropologist Marcel Mauss, who was uh, anthropologist in the early 20th century. And he studied these gifting rituals in uh, what he called primitive societies. Uh, it, he looked at Melanesia, uh, some uh, tribes in the Pacific Northwest historically, some Germanic tribes, a bunch of other places. And he said, gifting is, you, you find it everywhere in every culture. Right. And if this thing is inefficient, if gifting doesn't produce you know, economic growth, your classic economic model should say society should get rid of this stupid institution. It's stuck around. So why is it the case? And our answer is we're looking in the wrong place. Don't look mm. at static inefficiency. Yeah. Sometimes you get the wrong gift. It's a mismatch and you throw things away. Some, sometimes you get gifts that you really didn't think you would like too. So, you know, it's somewhat of a crapshoot, right? It's, it's a random walk, whether you're going to get a good gift or not. 
our answer was that the real benefits of gift giving come in the dynamic efficiency of trust and social networks that are built over time. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so how does gifting contribute to that? So let's step back a little bit and talk about Adam Smith's idea of the wealth of nations. So we root this you know, back okay. at the grandfather of, of economics, Adam Smith, and he had a simple formula for social prosperity, for the wealth of nations. And he said that the wealth of nations is based upon the division of labor conditioned by the extent of the market. Okay. Um, once we specialize in things, we get better, we become more productive. But in order to do that, we need to extend the market. We need to trade with more and more people. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, that's great, but there's a problem that arises right away. The, the more we engage in broad-based trade, the more we're going to start encountering people who are quasi-anonymous or anonymous to us. We don't know them very well. And if we don't know somebody very well, we start to think, are their intentions very good toward me? Are they going to you know, do good by me in some kind of business deal? Or are they going to cheat me? Um, we need some kind of mechanisms in society for people to overcome their distrust of anonymous or infrequent um, uh, partners in, in a relationship and, and build that trust. And this is what we argue gifting actually does. So in, to put it in more modern economic terms, one of the biggest transaction costs to people engaging in trade is uncertainty and mistrust. If, if the world is foggy, it's cloudy, we don't really know who we're uh, dealing with, do we want to actually engage in trade with them? Ah, I don't know if I can trust them, so maybe I shouldn't engage in trade at all. If that is the world we live in, then trade shrinks, the, the, the market shrinks and societies become less prosperous. Our argument is that gifting is one of many different institutions, uh, social institutions that have arisen throughout history and across different cultures to deal with this problem of mistrust and uh, gifting actually helps us build social relationships that make markets run more smoothly. Interesting. So I'm really curious. Um, th this question might seem a bit out of uh, left field, but I'm kind of curious how far you're going to take this argument, right? That um, there are these social customs, social relations that undergird or possibly enable, um, you know, commercial society, let's call it that, right? This relatively anonymous um, interaction with people that you mainly have a commercial relationship with. So one of the most, um, or probably the most paradigmatic critic of the classical economist is Karl Marx. Marx was effectively arguing that whether or not it is efficient to rely on division of labor to produce something like a pin in, in Adam Smith's famous example, that, that's kind of beside the point, because ultimately by dividing labor up like that, you're ultimately creating people that are alienated from the final product that they're creating. So, so ultimately, it's, it's again, it's, it's commercial society or the, the, the rules or flat efficiency uh, considerations bumping up against something deeper. To, to what extent can, could you make the same argument in the context of, of division of labor or other things like that, where, you know, it might be efficient in a flat sense to rely on a babysitter to take care of your children 
or to only go out to eat and never cook yourself to, to engage in those kinds of trades. But, but that might somehow be missing the point in, in, in some uh, you know, social sense. Yeah, my answer to this is that uh, Marx is filled with a lot of balderdash there. You know, he, he sees the world in very materialistic, in a very materialistic way as do a lot of economists still to this day. I mean, it's just, you know, we tend in, in political economy to focus on money and income and GDP because it's easy things to measure. And that's, we reify our understanding of the world based upon that. And we think that everybody's interested in the, you know, the goods that they produce and that not surprisingly kind of leads to alienation. But there's, other things, though, I the the process, the actual process of trade, is what makes us better human beings. We get to learn mm -hmm. about one another. We get to interact with one another, um, and it's not just trade. It's what goes on before the trade. Uh, one of my uh, favorite economists, Glenn Lowry, who's at Brown University now, was at Harvard previously, had has this great statement. He says, "Relations before transactions." Before mm -hmm, we trade mm -hmm. with anybody, and that you know takes you back one step, before you make any kind of prog product, right? A pin in a pin factory or whatever, a sweater in a sweater factory, um, you have to know people that you're going to trade with. You need right. to have these social relations. And you know, I, I think economics has really lost that notion of sociology, that of the mm -hmm. social relations that matter. And that's that's what keeps people human. It's it's not just the okay, I make a good and I you know capture all the you know the, the value from it. And I, I'm not a big fan of the labor theory of value, like Marx says. I mean, we get alienated from our product because somebody takes some stuff from us. Um, I I'm okay as long as I get a pretty good return. If people get more value from the stuff that I produce, well, great. That's mm -hmm. what gains from trade are all about, and that's. You know, you see other people becoming happy by what you do and give to them and um, vice versa, what they give to me. And that's that's a great world. So, yeah, yeah I'm not going to worry too much about Marx. Right. OK, but um, I think the reason why I bring this up is because I was so confused why. Walt Fogel would even raise this as a as a puzzle, right? That you know that that gifting is something that is somehow puzzling or something that 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 must be explained. So my suspicion here, or um, would be, is it possibly the case, you know, that commercial society or the values um, that that are inherent in commercial society are somehow corrosive to those social social institutions or social relations that you're describing here, right? That those are two distinct logics, and they're possibly crowding each other out. Yeah, I, I don't think that's where his argument was. And in fact, okay. I, if you go back to the um, 1993 American Economic Review piece, when I first read that, uh, it's a short little piece. And it's, it's it, Walt Fogel is a great writer. He actually later on went to write a popular book on this called Scroogeonomics. And um, I thought initially he was just writing this thing tongue in cheek. Right. Um, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, let's be the Scrooge, the economic, um, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, bah humbug person just throwing the wet blanket on a, a wonderful holiday that seem, that people seem to love and enjoy. Um, it, surprisingly, you know, people jumped on this thing and there's a small uh, literature related to Wald Fogel's initial piece, which really people are taking quite seriously. And, and that troubles me because, again, 
it, it views the world in very narrow materialistic terms, right? It's mm -hmm. just, what can we measure? You know, what right. it, we can measure how much a good was priced at in the market. So that $15 sweater right there and, and you know, Nordstrom was $15. And then we can also ask somebody through a survey to measure how much did you value this? Oh, I didn't like it at all. $0. Okay. That's $15 poof into the air. Um, and that's, you know, for me, that's, you know, somewhat troubling. I, I think I, I have never spoken with Joel Waldfogel about this, whether his initial argument was uh, tongue in cheek. I still suspect it is because his, his writing is fun. I really love uh, a lot of what he writes, but um, it's kind of problematic there. And, and what we're trying to do with our project is to remind people that it's just not that, you know, very narrow econometric model of looking at the things we can measure, the physical things that we have, maybe some, you know, experiences that you buy in the marketplace, like a skydiving trip or something. It's not just that, it's the relationships that go on mm -hmm. within the market, which is really, really important. And I, I think a lot of us, you know, forget that. And we turn on the daily news and say, let's hear what the GDP report is. That's what economics is about. Economics is about how people interact with one another in a world of scarcity and allocate resources. And part of that is building the relationships that are needed to uh, you know, allocate those resources, to make us flourish. Right. So less focus on the individual, more focus on social networks and dynamic interaction. Um, yeah. So let's let's speak about that. Um, so, so how or, or reintroduce us to this uh, argument that you're making that gifting creates dynamic efficiency through trust. Right. So let's remember, too, what we're, we're dealing with is that we're in a, a, an extended market where we don't know the intentions of other people. Uh, we're in a world of quasi anonymous trade. And so we need to be able to have a strong um, fabric of trust within society. And a number of other scholars have studied this, including our own Margaret Levy and that, that, you know, societies that are more trusting of one another are more prosperous because people are willing to engage in interactions. So how does gifting do that? Yeah. Well, we say that gifting is important because it does a number of things. First of all, it engages in sacrificial behavior. So when you give a gift to somebody, this is not like an exchange in a store where I'm going to say, mm -hmm. I want that $15 sweatshirt and you're going to give that to me. And, you know, I'm valuing it at that, but you're taking some resources and just kind of giving them freely to somebody. Mm -hmm. Now we're, we're going to have, put some caveats in this in a second. But what you're doing is making a sacrificial offering. And, and Marcel Maus, who studied this gifting uh, culture throughout the world, noted that a lot of gifting rituals involve this sacrificial uh, offerings, burnt offerings often. You, you can even go back in almost every religious uh, tradition and you see there's some kind of burnt offering. You have to, you know, burn the, you know, waste your first fruits or burn the most mm. succulent lamb uh, in front of everybody. And to show that you're willing to sacrifice some of your resources. Now, mm. again, you know, uh, economists would go sacrificing resources. That's crazy. Why would you want to do that? And the answer is that it tells other people, it sends a signal that you can be trusted, right? 
we don't know what's going to occur in the future. There's going to be times that are difficult and hard, and you might have to rely upon somebody else. Who are you going to rely upon? Well, the person who previously showed you that they're willing to make a sacrifice for you mm. is a person that you probably can rely upon. So sacrifices are very important here. A good example of this is two people that want to engage in a, a marriage. They want to marry one another and live with one another for a very long period of time. Well, what goes on here? In our contemporary world, usually one of the partners gives the other partner something very expensive, like a diamond ring. In mm. the past, there were dowries and bride prices and all these other things. Um, and if you look at these, it's basically, I'm going to take to take the contemporary example of a diamond ring. I'm going to burn three months of my salary. That's the kind of rule of thumb that if you get engaged, you, the ring should be three months of your salary. I'm going to burn three months of salary on this thing that fits on your finger. And it looks nice. But, you know, beyond that, I mean, what good is a diamond ring? Yeah, maybe you can mm. cut grass or something if you're stuck in you know a room or something. I don't know. But um, it's, it's a way of saying, hey, I'm in this for the long haul. I, I know I can tell you that I'm in it for the long haul, but that's cheap talk. Here, let me post a bond. Let me show you that I'm willing to make a sacrifice. Here's three months of my uh, hard-earned income, and I'm burning it on this ring. Um, and, and we do that here in, in, in many types of gifting rituals. As I said, Marcel Maus you know, noted these things in Melanesia, this Kula ceremony, where you know, tribes would move around to different islands in, in ritualistic patterns in such a way that, uh, and, and bring gifts that they would actually just destroy. They would mm. literally burn things. And you know, why would you do that? These are poor societies. What the different tribes are saying, listen, we're willing to make a sacrifice because if there's ever a time that you may be questioning our intentions, look what we did previously. We burned some of our resources. Trust us. Right. So the sacrifice is, is a critical uh, component of gifting. The other aspect of gifting that is actually very important is that it's public. So for the wedding example, you know, just two people in an intimate setting, you know, that's fine. That's kind of communicating between two people that know each other a little bit, but are about to start on a long journey. But what about society more generally? We're talking about extended markets. We're talking about people who need to, that we might trade with at some point in time, you know, maybe a month from now, maybe a year from now, maybe we only interact with them one or two times throughout our life. We know those people are out there. How can we trust them? Well, many of these gifting ceremonies are public in that they occur at specific periods of time and they have certain ritualistic behaviors that are associated with them. So Christmas is a very good one. Uh, when you think about it, it's like, okay, it's going to come at the end of December. Everybody's going to put up lots of decorations. They're going to wrap uh, presents and boxes and bows and wrapping paper, all that kind of stuff, which by the way, is also a lot of dead weight loss. Right. And, and Christmas cards. I mean, I send Christmas cards to people I haven't seen for 30 years. <laughs> Why am I doing that, right? It seems kind of like a waste. And even though you, Nicholas, might not know that I'm doing it, you I've know I've never that, received one, no. <laughs> yeah, everybody, yeah, you've never received one. I used to give, <laughs> give, uh, used to give Christmas cards to or holiday cards to our, my uh, 
colleagues, but somebody told me not to do that anymore. Uh, it was kind of weird. <laughs> Academics don't like gifts for some reason. We're trying to change that. But, um, but you know that even though you don't see me give a gift to my wife or give a gift to the neighbors or send some greeting cards to old high school friends, you know that I'm part of a culture that that's being done. Right. You can you know, right. just look about and you, you see people going merrily on their way and decorating their houses and lights and the bows and all that stuff. And you understand there's lots of people making sacrifices. You don't know if any single person is, but mm. odds are there are people engaged in this sacrificial giving around you know, late December. And it's not just Christmas. You could talk other religious holidays. They have this in, in Judaism too. Hanukkah is one of these. There's a, other sacrificial rituals that they go throughout the year. Um, Islam has a series of them as well. But there's other things too, like birthdays. Right? So gifting yeah. is not just Christmas, it's birthdays. And we know that even though birthdays come, you know, there's somebody having a birthday every day of the year. We know there's people out there, you know, blowing up balloons and having cake and wrapping boxes and giving gifts. Valentine's Day is another gifting ritual. Uh, baby showers, uh, bridal showers, uh, all these different types of, uh, you know, times, graduation parties. These things are gift-giving ceremonies that we we recognize in our society. That you understand that other people are making sacrifices and giving gifts, and that's the public aspect of gift giving. The public aspect is also enhanced by its ritualistic behavior. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so again, certain, there are certain key times of the year where we do engage in gift giving, Christmas being one of them, right? The, the dominant one here in our American culture. Um, but Valentine's Day, birthdays, as I've mentioned, right? And they have certain rhythms to them. We do certain things. We're supposed to decorate and sing songs and all these kind of things. And those rituals get us to practice this sacrificial behavior, right? It reminds us that, you know, we need to do this. We need to be giving to others. We need to be trusting of one another and, and um, build relationships with, with other people. You know, give of yourself without necessarily respecting or expecting anything in return. And that's, by the way, that idea of sacrificing for others without getting anything in return seems like it's not market-based, but it's crucial. Yeah, absolutely, right? Because, I mean, you know, cooperation between two people who are only ever willing to uh, in engage in things that are statically efficient in the moment immediately, that, that seems really complicated, right? So, so yeah. I think, um, because as you were saying, right, it, it, it's, there, there's always some uh, temporal dimension to where, you know, I may be getting a little bit more out of this deal today, but then you're getting a little bit more about it tomorrow, but who, who knows if it will balance out, but that's not really what it's about, right? So, so, so in your understanding, gifting is really about this idea of um, being will it, willing to forfeit some short-term gain or even incur some short-term loss, um, publicly showing that because ultimately you're trying to communicate that what you really are interested in is dynamic or, or long-term cooperation. Right. So, and you do that by showing, okay, look here, I'm willing to forfeit um, something that I could gain right now, right? Because that's not really what this is about to me. But so I'm curious about, um, I, I think I completely buy this in the um, interpersonal 
dimension of, of gifting. The, but the argument that you're making, right, is more ambitious where you say that this leads to generalized trust, right, which is sort of the part of the argument you just uh, walked us through. I'm just curious, are there societies where this is less common, where uh, the public aspect of gifting is less common? Yeah, now that is a great empirical question. And we brought that up at the Political Economy Forum. We haven't gotten to that point in our, our project yet. This is mm -hmm. largely a conceptual issue to help to reframe the way we theoretically view what gifting is and why dynamic efficiency is important in economies. Uh, but when we talk about generalized trust, you had a great question there. Yeah, I understand how it works, you know, interpersonal, that whole wedding ring thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, people say. But how do you generalize this to strangers? Well, let me give you uh, two illustrations of this that might help make it clearer. Yes, please. The first is around Christmas time. That when you, I live in the small town of Duval, Washington, um, just northeast of Seattle. And every Christmas time, all the businesses decorate their, their stores. They put lights up, they maybe put garland up, they paint the windows with snowmen and Santa Claus and all that kind of stuff. And they don't have to do that. Um, that's kind of a business expense that, you know, they, somebody has to take a few hours to do that. Maybe they pay somebody to paint the windows. Yeah. They have to store the garland in the lights or rent it from somewhere. You know, that, that comes from their bottom line. You know, maybe they can price it into the things over time, but... You know, that what each of those businesses is doing is sending a signal that says, hey, we want to participate in the community. Right. We're, we're part of the community and we're willing to spend resources because if we're a pizza place and we put up all the, you know, the tree and all the lights and all the nice stuff, um, you know that we're giving something to the community that we don't have to do. I mean, we're just selling pizzas. That's all we are really required to do. Mm. But we're giving more. So that means implicitly, I mean, you kind of pick this up and, and, and think about this. If, if something goes wrong with your pizza, right? And are, is this a place that is going to make it up, right? And say, oh yeah, sorry, we got the pizza to you later. It was the wrong order. We'll, we'll give you a free pizza. They're already telling us that by making these sacrifices to begin with. The storefront that doesn't do any of this, you know, everybody else is decorated, but there's that one place that's not all adorned with anything. You're like, huh, what's their deal? I wonder what they're about, right? They, they don't seem to want to play with everybody else. Another good example of this too, and this might make it a little bit more personal for some folks, is Halloween. Because we're only about a week or so away from Halloween when we're taping this. And Halloween is one of these weird things that, you know, kids go door to door um, and ring the doorbell and, you know, say trick or treat. And then somebody gives them candy. Right. Now, this is kind of annoying. You know, every October 31st, we have to hang out downstairs and wait for the doorbell to ring. We have to calm down the dogs. And, you know, we don't know how much candy to buy and who's coming. And you know, that's kind of a, it's it's annoying. Right. If you go through the neighborhood and you see that there are certain people that are not participating yeah. in the ritual, they, they turn off all the lights and they close the drapes and, and that, you kind of know that those are the people that are not really neighborly. They're not willing to play along. They're saying, yeah, this is just too you know, much to do for the community. 
There's other people though that they put up the skeletons and the cobwebs and all that mm. stuff. You're like, wow, those are people who really love this holiday and get engaged and they're excited about it. Um, and those are the people that in a time of crisis, if there's a big windstorm and you know trees are blown down all the time, those are the people who probably will help you know chainsaw some of these trees out of the roads. They're somebody you can go to if you need a charge for your car. Right. Yeah. These are very subtle signals. And, um, you know, there's there's in between. Right. We we participate a little bit. And when our kids were young, we did it all up and in, in that kind of stuff. And, and nowadays we, we still participate. In it. And it's a little bit annoying, but we want to be part of the community and we want to tell other people like, hey, if you ever need help, we're here for you. And hopefully you're there for us. And that's where this generalized trust comes in. We see this thing publicly. Yeah, um, exactly. rituals being practiced and, and the ritualistic nature enhances that uh, public uh, public aspect of it, because we know October 31st, that's Halloween, December 25th, that's going to be Christmas, Valentine's Day, February 14th, right? Um, all that stuff helps to, to make everything a little bit more visible. Yeah, I think Halloween is, the, is, an abs- is probably the best example, because I think if you gave me the the job of trying to find a community activity that creates a stronger neighborhood. I think it would be hard to come up with something better than, than, than the Halloween practice in the United States, right? because you're literally um, going around either with your children or just the children go to pretty much every house in the community, right? Say hello to everyone mm-hmm. and interact with all the other different children. Uh, adults are around possibly like going with, uh, with the children through different houses, saying hello to everyone right? Like you have to actively participate in some way, right? Or you're very, like everyone sees it at the same time that you're not participating. So it's it's hard to imagine a more perfectly orchestrated way to create community out of a neighborhood. And the Halloween example goes back in Irish history too. You look at Sam, I, I can't pronounce it even though I'm Irish, but they had a, a, a ritual very much like this. And I know Halloween has the reputation for being, you know, filled with mischief and things like that. But even the, the old Irish holidays, you know, people would give things to one another. Yeah. And, you know, around Christmas time, there's a tradition in Europe called wassailing, where people would go around with, you know, uh, boiled alcohol, like a beer or something, and they would give it to people and sing carols. I'm going to mm-hmm. sing for you. And, you know, and, you know, they, especially when they went to wealthier houses, you know, the wealthy people were expected to bring those people in and feed them. Right, yeah, yeah. And and that's the last thing that we consider to be very important about uh, gifting that creates this dynamic efficiency is that it involves reciprocity. Mm. So yes, there's sacrifice I'm giving to you, you know, without being asked to do that. But the ritualistic aspect of it has some degree of reciprocity built into it. I'm giving gifts to you. If I come over to your house, you have a, a party, I'm going to bring a hostess gift. I'm going to, I'm right, going to bring yeah. a, a bottle of wine and, you know, that. And then, you know, next time I have a party and you come over, you you bring a bottle of wine as well, too. And there's this kind of reciprocal relationship um, in gifting, too. I give gifts to you. I'm going to get something in back. And it, it doesn't have to be perfectly equal. You know, people who are wealthier are oftentimes expected to give more and people who are poor to give less. People who are older give more to their children and expect less in return. Um, And, 
even places like Halloween, right? There's this reciprocal thing is that, you know, the kids come to the door and they go trick or treat and then candy is given. The kids are taught to say, thank you. Right. right? That's a, re that's a, a reciprocal response that I appreciate what you did for me. The, the sacrifice to be realized has to be recognized. Mm -hmm. And you, giving is great, but giving requires a gracious recipient. And that graciousness, the gracious reciprocity that's built into so many different gifting rituals is, again, critical for making Marcus Warren effectively. When somebody does something nice for you at a store, you, you, you thank them very much. You return with business. You, you reciprocate um, to them. And, um, and that makes markets better. We trust one another. We like engaging with other individuals. It, just do the counterfactual thought experiment. Imagine a world without gifting where we don't know if, you know, when somebody gives you something, they don't say thank you or nobody gives unto themselves. It's just a, a, a kind of cold world where you do calculate the exchanges, you know, based upon this perfect static efficiency. That's not that cool of a world. It's kind of a cold world. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. And um, that's sort of the last point that I want to push you on, um, which is, I think a lot of economists are going to listen to this and say, well, I don't really see how this has anything to do with economics at all or political economy for that matter. Right. They're going to say like, well, what you're doing is sociology, maybe anthropology or something like that. And while I'm much more sympathetic to your position for sure, I, I would still say that there are a lot of markets that are extremely anonymous where there's um, referencing some of your uh, earlier work. There isn't even any expectation of tipping or anything like that. There is, um, Nobody thanks each other necessarily when they're anonymously buying stocks online, for example, or things like that. So to what extent does any of this really um, or, or defend your argument for why there is an important connection here between these social rituals and commercial society or, or market exchange? Is it really necessary to have these social relations for successful market exchange? It's really bringing together Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, which we rooted everything to begin mm -hmm. with, with his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Right. He, Smith uh, was most known for the invisible hand that he quoted in The Wealth of Nations, even though it's mentioned once in The Theory of Moral Sentiments. But it's The Theory of Moral Sentiments where he really talks about these thicker relationships. You know, why do we do good things for one another when we don't have to? And, you know, part of it is just, you know, he has this whole theory of an impartial spectator. And, you know, if I was standing outside and saw these two people negotiating, you know, how would I view this relationship? If somebody made a mistake and then just walked away and says, I'm not correcting it, you'd go, oh, I'd hate to be in that position. No, I don't like that. I don't like how that is. And, and gifting tends to bring that out, right? It tends to test us, um, broad-based society. And actually, one of our, our taglines for this uh, study is that this is the uh, gifting represents the, what they call folk theorem, uh, lived daily. And the folk theorem is this idea within collective action theory, uh, wherein basic collective action problem, people have an incentive to defect all the time. But if you repeat the game over and over and over again, um, people will then start to find a cooperative equilibrium because they expect that they're going to be uh, interacting with somebody in the future. 
And these the folk theorem games have been played in, in labs between the same people, but really gifting represents this being played out just naturally. So even these stockbrokers, all these trades are done online with computers. You really can't even see, you don't even know if it's a, a human being or not. It's still embedded in this culture where people are going to be uh, engaged in gifting. I, I bet there are stockbrokers that give gifts at Christmas time or at birthdays um, that gave their, their honey a, a, a diamond ring uh, mm. for marriage and that. Um, you know, the, so it, it's, spr it's spread diffusely here. And to the economists that say, ah, this is just sociology, I would say that good economics actually takes into account sociology. It goes back to Smith. You read Smith, Wealth of Nations and Theory of Moral Sentiments. All, all of the social sciences are there. It's sociology, it's economics, it's political science, even as history and, and a little bit of anthropology and psychology mixed in there. And I, I think we've lost that, that we've divided our labor, separated ourselves into different departments and buildings. And uh, I think it's about time that we, you know, bring some of this back together and, and understand that there's more going on in the world than just the, the cold measurable things that we can calculate in our econometric models. Um, sociology can tell us a lot. Anthropology, an anthropologist from 100 years ago is instructing us on why we have Halloween trick-or-treating here in the United States. It's, it's kind of neat. Tony Gill, thank you so much for being part of the Political Economy Forum podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. And hopefully this conversation is my gift to everybody else and that you appreciate it. <laughs> That's a great point to close on. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.